Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, if you will open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. If you were with us last week, I said that we've started probably what we should consider the last oracle of this book. Yes, we have a few more sermons to go before we end the book, but there's a theme that exists from chapter 12 all the way to the end of the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 14. And it's that phrase, on that day. And we spoke about last week how that day in which Zechariah speaks of here in this last oracle is not a literal 24-hour day, but it's a period, an era of time. And we've said that that era of time, this age, is the age of the free offer of the gospel where Christ is held before all people. It is preached to the four corners of the earth so that God, through the message of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, might draw His people unto Himself. And that's really what was before us last week as we looked at in this day, between the first and second coming of Jesus, this era in which we live today, the Lord is dealing with His people. He's dealing with His church and He's preserving them, we said, in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 12. And then He is converting them, filling them with His Spirit. There from verses 10 in chapter 12 to the end of chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, we said how the Lord was sanctifying His people, removing, eradicating the idols, the idolatry that finds itself rooted within His people's hearts. And so now we come to this short little song or poem in verses 7 through 9 that probably your Bible's subtitle, The Shepherd Struck. And here it is in verses 7 through 9 that we're going to think about this era of the church, this free offer of the gospel. And yet... It's not what God is doing, that is the attention of Zechariah, but it is how Christians are to live in this era, in this age of time. What are we to expect in the normal Christian life, we might say? And so with that in mind, I want to read verses 7 through 9, and then we'll go through our exposition of these three verses together. People of God, hear the word of God, for it's written for you, to you, and you will be sanctified by it. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and I will refine them as one refines silver, And test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Well, this is the word of God for the people of God. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts as we study it together. Well, here in verses 7 through 9, maybe it's not as clear to you as I hope it will be at the very end of our time in this passage, but as I've said, this little small poem or song that's found here in Zechariah chapter 13 
is all about what are we to expect in the Christian life. And I think that's an important question for us to ask because so often I think that we have unrealistic expectations of what the Christian life ought to be. Especially, I think, that we find ourselves facing that dilemma uh, when we live in a uh, community uh, that is uh, probably the most prevalent denomination within our community is Pentecostalism, uh, in which I actually grew up in, because the Christian life for them is uh, a, a life that walking with Jesus is a bed of roses if you have enough faith. Actually, you would argue that going about the Christian way is full of blessedness and flourishing without any hardship at all if you have enough faith. And I've even used my grandmother as a, an illustration of this because I've spoken of very kind of pointedly how it was crushing to me to see my, my grandmother pass on to glory with no assurance of her salvation. I believed wholeheartedly and I still believe to this day that my grandmother was a Christian woman, a very godly woman. She was a prayer warrior in every sense of the way, but she lacked an assurance of her salvation for one major, or because of one major kind of dilemma in her life, is that she dealt with hardship and struggles. She dealt with tribulations and trials. My grandmother had wayward children and grandchildren. My, my grandmother dealt with her mother being gravely ill for all of my young life, uh, even when my grandmother Josie went on to glory. Bedridden, eaten up with dementia. And, and she would often ask, you know, Lord, why would you allow my mother to struggle with these hardships? Why would you allow me to deal with things like wayward children? Why would you deal with... Uh, 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 a deck of hand, a, a hand of cards, if you will, sorry. Why would you deal this hand of cards to me where even my husband is an unbeliever up until his deathbed? Why, why would you do this, Lord? I have walked with you very faithfully. I have prayed unto you. I know my Bible. And it was all because she had heard the message of prosperity. She had heard the message of wealth and health. And she had, she had heard pastor after pastor either in the local church or on the television saying there's no sickness, no pain, just have enough faith. Every earthly treasure that you desire can be yours, just have enough faith. No tribulation, persecution, trials or troubles, just have enough faith. And so she goes on to glory thinking that the reason why she does not have a new Cadillac, the reason why she has wayward children, and the reason why she was even dealing with dementia, heart issues, and, and so forth, is because she did not have enough faith. It was an unrealistic expectation of the Christian life, wasn't it? And, and Zechariah wants the people of God to have a realistic expectation of what it's going to be like to walk with Christ. To walk with this shepherd that is spoken of here in chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. In this day of the church, in this era of the church, in this age of the free offer of the gospel, yes, the Lord is building His church. Yes, the Lord is 
preserving His church. Yes, the Lord is converting sinners and sanctifying believers. He is doing all of these things, but He is doing it in spite of the tribulations, the persecutions, the trials, the troubles in which we are promised will come throughout the Word of God. And you say, well, Matt, aren't there blessings promised to the people of God throughout all of the Scriptures? And the answer is yes. And we'll even see some of them this evening in our short text before us. But there will be tolls and tribulations, sufferings and persecutions. That's why I took the pastoral privilege of calling out one of the hymns for this evening. Because as I wrote this sermon this past week, all I could sing was that fifth verse of the church's one foundation. Mid toil and tribulations and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of faith forevermore. You know, it's one, of those, it's one of those verses that if you have a realistic expectation of the Christian life, that these things are surely to come, and yet there is the better day, the best day that is to come, you can hold tight to the foundation of the gospel that is before us in verse 7. This is really how the text breaks down for us. It's a focus in on the cross of Christ in verse 7. And then in verses 8 and 9, it's all about how we live in light of the cross of Christ as Christians. And so look back at verse 7 with me. And very briefly, I want to mention the work of Christ. Because here in verse 7, you have the Lord God Himself speaking. And He awakens the sword. Now the sword here should be looking at at some sort of like militaristic uh, sense. It it should be a a sign of, of judgment, if you will. Yes of death, yes of suffering, but but in a judgmental setting. And so the Lord Himself awakens the sword, and He awakens the sword to strike against who? My shepherd. And immediately you might let your mind go to the evil shepherds that we've talked about in former sermons. But this is not those evil shepherds. This is my shepherd. And so the Lord God Almighty speaks. He awakens the judgmental sword of death and suffering. And He says, I awaken it against my shepherd. And if that wasn't mind-blowing enough for you, look at the second part of that short stanza there at the beginning of verse 7 against the man who stands next to me. And and what that is literally saying in the Hebrew language is that God is saying, strike out against my shepherd who is a man that is my peer, that is my equal. That's what that word means. This shepherd in which the sword is about to strike out against is the Lord's peer, the Lord's Equal, And so our mind now cannot think of the evil shepherds, but has to think about the good shepherd of the sheep. The one who in John chapter 10, Jesus Christ says, I am that shepherd. And of course, as Jesus knows the scriptures of the Old Testament, he knows the prophecies that have spoken clearly of him before his first coming. As he says that in John chapter 10, he knows what he is saying. That I am the good shepherd of the sheep. And what does he continue to say? And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. What Jesus is literally saying here is that the sword of the Father strikes out against the shepherd. 
strikes out against the sun. And oftentimes that, that, that causes us some pause because, because we've made up in our mind that, that, the, that the death of Jesus Christ was some sort of plan B. That, that God establishes the world. He creates the world. He puts in it all the animals and then Adam and Eve and He strikes out this covenant of works with them and, and He thinks that all things are going to go blissfully and all things are going to go well. And then when Adam and Eve disobey, God sits on His throne caught off guard and says, what am I to do with this? I guess I'm going to have to send my son. That's not the case. Before the foundations of the world, the son was the lamb who was slain, the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. Or, in our mind, we've created this false dichotomy between the father in the Old Testament and the son in the New Testament. Where, where the father in the Old Testament is a father who is, you know, almost, almost unhinged, we might say, full of judgment, full of full of kind of grudging mercy. This father who wants to withhold his love that is vindictive against his people because they've sinned against him. But, but Jesus, as he's ushered in in the New Testament, he's full of love and compassion and, and long-sufferingness. And, and, and that's not the case at all. And, if, and surely, Zechariah chapter 7 is showing us that the cross of Christ is actually the Father's proclamation of love for His people. Now the cross of Christ is the Father's plan A. And in an unhindered unity, the Father has predestined the Son for glory, but first He must humble Himself and take on the cross of Calvary. You know, we... we when we have this false dichotomy, if you will, between the Father in the Old Testament and the Son in the New, we, we miss Bible verses that say things like this. And the Lord laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. And it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. And He has put Him to grief. That God so loved the world that He gave His Son that the Father has demonstrated His love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. We ought not to pass by verse 7 in any sort of quick fashion because here it is that the Father ordains the cross and the Son embraces His mission, which is the cross, so that he might show us the love that He has for us. And so verse 7, really verse 7a is a, a precious reminder, a beautiful reminder I think of the cross and the wonderful harmony and agreement that exists between the Father and the Son that the Father would, would strike out against the Son, His co-equal shepherd, so that He might purchase the redemption of His people. But we can't focus only there at verse 7a, even though it is a precious reminder of the cross, because the great burden of the text, the, the, the great theme of these three verses is actually how the believer is to respond or how the believer is to live in light of the cross of Christ. And, and you see it there as we continue on 
in verse 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. What, what Zechariah is prophesying here is that there is a reality of persecution. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And we know something of this. We know that actually Jesus references this very phrase in verse 7 when he tells of the night that, that he will be betrayed. And he tells his disciples, listen, you will watch me betrayed and given over to the hands of the Romans and the religious establishment and you will be scattered. And even Peter, when Jesus prophesies that, you remember, says, oh no, in great protest. Oh no, Lord, I will never leave you. If you're going to the cross to die, I'm going to the cross to die. And we know how that ends up for Peter, don't we? That he would deny his master three times before the rooster crowed. And so even as we build up to the cross that the night the Lord was betrayed, as he's taken into custody and falsely accused and sent to the cross of Calvary, the, the disciples are scattered. The shepherd is being struck and the sheep are scattering about, but they're doing it then in fear and in shame. But then when the Lord Jesus is resurrected on the third day and the disciples are restored, we again see the scattering of the disciples, don't we, in the Acts narrative. And it's happening just as Jesus had foretold. You will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, then in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And what does the Lord use to spread the disciples out of Jerusalem? Well, He uses the death of Stephen. And he uses the persecution of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And they begin to scatter and they begin to move out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth. And what's happening between before the cross and after the resurrection? There's a scattering of disciples, but now as chapter 8 in Acts verse 1 through 4 says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The hostility turns from the shepherd to the sheep. The hostility turns from the shepherd to this remnant in which he talks about in verse 8. You notice how great the persecution is going to be, don't you? That two-thirds of the people shall be cut off and perish, but one-third will be left alive. All throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea of a remnant being preserved. And even in the midst of persecution, a remnant is preserved that is Christ's church. And Paul, thinking about this remnant that is being preserved despite the persecution, the trials, and the tribulations that have come against the church, in Acts chapter 14, 22, he says this, or Luke actually giving us a summary of Paul's ministry says this, and he went strengthening the soul of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? If, if I could give a, a theme of ministry, that would be it. You know, here we go, we're preaching Christ and Him crucified so that the souls of the disciples might be strengthened and they might be encouraged to continue in the faith. But why is Paul doing that? 
what he says to the churches of Lystra and Iconium. There in, Luke, or in Acts chapter 14, as recorded by Luke, he says this, Because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He says, The strengthening of the souls of the disciples, the encouraging them to continue in the faith, that's my theme of ministry. But it's because through many tribulations they will have to enter the kingdom of God. And, and, and he's not trying to be gloomy or a, or a negative Nelly. He, he's, not, he's not trying to be, you know, not, not trying to belittle the Christians in any way. He's trying to help them get their expectations right. The real nature of the Christian life is that we must go through many tribulations, that persecution will come. Jesus said, remember in John chapter 15 in the upper room as He's preparing His disciples for Him to leave and the Holy Spirit to come, He says, remember, you are not greater than Me. A servant is not greater than his master. And so if they persecute Me, they will persecute you also. And so in the light of the cross, the Christian life, we should expect trials, tribulation, persecution. But the beautiful Gospel in this is that our persecution actually has a purpose. If you continue to look at verse 9, this remnant that will be restored for the people of God, a third, this third, in verse 9, will be put into the fire so that they might be refined and tested. We're to expect suffering. That's what verse 8 says. We're to expect suffering. We're to expect tribulation. We're to expect the world to hate us because they hated Christ. And just as their hatred turns from Christ to the disciples and acts, it still remains focused upon us as His people. Even to this day. And Peter says, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, he says, it's all that you might be tested in your faith. That's what Zechariah chapter 9 is, or chapter 13, verse 9, excuse me, is saying that the purpose of suffering, the purpose of persecution, the purpose of trials and tribulation is to refine us, it is to make us more like Jesus. The refinery, if you will, is to burn away all the sins that keep us from being exactly like our Lord. We sang Wednesday night, how firm a foundation, and I love that verse, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The, fame, the flame shall not hurt you, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. He, the Lord, through our persecution, is teaching us, one, to trust Him, that He is working all things out for the good of His people and the glory of His name, but ultimately that he is in our persecution and in our sufferings making us more like Jesus. Well, the third thing that I want you to see here is not only that our trials have a purpose and not only that trials are to be expected, but in the midst of our trials we have a great blessing from the Lord and that blessing is prayer. If you look at verse 9, right there in the middle of verse 9, it says, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. 
Now, there's a lot of stuff in Zechariah that we've had to approach very, very gently and very diligently. There have been things in Zechariah that, that we have not been able to fully grasp, right? There's still things in Zechariah that I'm not sure exactly what's going on. But this is one of the most simple phrases in all of Zechariah. My people will call upon me and I will hear them. It, it is one of the most simple gospel promises that we could ever imagine that we can call upon the Father in heaven in the day of trouble and He will answer us. Even Isaiah chapter 65 says, Before they call, I will already answer. Ask of me, Jesus says, in my name and I will do it. Here it is that the Lord, Jesus Himself knows that because He has been persecuted, because He has suffered, because He has experienced great tribulation, we will experience those same things. But here is the lifeline, if you will. Prayer. Prayer is part of God's provision for us in our suffering. And I, and I think about you know, when, when our kiddos get sick or when they fall and get hurt, you know, it's not that I'm happy that they're sick or happy that they're hurt or happy that they're troubled or scared, but, but I am happy that the first place they, that they want to come to is, is me. That they want to come to their earthly father because just my presence can make things a little less scary or, or, or the sickness a, a little less diminishing or, or whatever it might be. I mean, you think about it. If your child went to everybody else instead of you when they were sick or when they were scared or when they were troubled, when they've hurt themselves, it, I'll be, I'll, maybe this is just me, it would break my heart. It, it would cause me great grief to think that my kids went everywhere else but me in their times of trouble. How much more so must it grieve the Father when in the depths of our trials we turn every which way but to Him, that we try to handle things on our own when He has simply said to us, call on me and I will answer. You know, one of the hymns, I'm sorry I'm using hymn after hymn it seems tonight, but one of the hymns that I love that we sing is, Have we trials and temptations? Cumbered with a load of care, precious Savior, still our refuge, take it to the Lord in prayer. Why can we sing that with so much hope? It's because we pray and He hears. That's a beautiful blessing of God's love for us. But even, even more, if you didn't think prayer was a good enough lifeline for your affliction, look at the very end of verse 9 very quickly, and I know I'm out of time. Here is the theme of all of God's promises. The beating heartbeat of Jesus Christ. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. This is a theme that has ran its course from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David. It's been a mantra of the Lord's love for His people through the prophets of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. It is literally the, the phrase that is used throughout all of the Scriptures to describe the very heart of God 
in his relationship to his people. I am their God, and they are my people. And here's the greatest lesson, I think, for us in all of this text. That yes, trials and tribulations will come. Yes, the Christian life will not always be easy. It is often not a bed of roses. Often, it's the thorns of the thorn bushes. But, how can we have a realistic expectation of this Christian life? It's simply to be reminded day after day, as God cuts His covenant with us, you are my people and I am your God. You see, there's many blessings to be enjoyed in the love of the Father. I mean, we confessed it and affirmed it together, right? This provision and assurance, this protection, this infilling with the Holy Spirit, this, this even enabling to go and live for Jesus. We have the lifeline of prayer here before us and preservation as He preserves His remnant. All of these are blessings. And yet, the greatest gift is the Father in heaven that is where all of those blessings flow from. The greatest inheritance for the Christian is God Himself. All of the blessings that God rains down upon His people, showers us with from on high, they are marvelous, supernatural, undeserved gifts of grace. But the greatest gift is God Himself. And that that brings us back full circle because it leads us right back to verse 7. If there's any a day that we struggle to remember the covenant promises of God, I am your God and you are my people, we go right back to the cross of Christ where the sword of judgment and death struck out against the shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ, so that we might be redeemed. And that fuels our prayer life. That fuels our prayer life by simply knowing that if the Lord who gave His only begotten Son for us, would He not freely give us all things if we simply ask? That is confidence and that is assurance even in the face of temptation, suffering, trials, and pains. And that should fuel our prayer life that in every longing, in every want, in every trial, and in every tribulation, He longs to hear from us in prayer in the simple, gospel-centered reminder here is as we pray to a God who did not even withhold His only begotten Son and who will freely give us all things, when we pray to Him, He will answer. Why will He answer? Why will He give us all things? Because He has given us all things in Himself. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank You for this time in the Scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that it would indeed encourage us as we face trials and tribulations that we would know, Lord, that these are a part of the Christian life that you are using them to refine us, to make us more like Jesus. And you have given us a lifeline of prayer where we can call upon you and you will answer. And we can have a confidence that you are a hearing God and an answering God because you have given us, you have sworn to us that you have given to us yourself. And so, Lord, let us live day by day 
with the theme of our hearts being, I am God's people and He is my God. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Well, if you will stand and receive the Lord's blessing and then after the benediction we'll sing together the first verse of Psalm 117, of course to the tune of all creatures of our God and King. Stand and let's receive the Lord's blessing together. The grace of the Father, the love of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen.